Welcome to Finding Home. I'm Scott Harris, your host. Here, we start with a simple question. What does home mean to you? For 20 years, I've been immersed in the residential properties that speak to buyers and sellers in New York City. And I've discovered that home is much more than brick and mortar. Home really means discovering your true calling. I speak with passionate entrepreneurs, creators, and leaders about what drives and inspires them to follow their dreams and makes the world a better place. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. This quote, attributed to Seneca, the Roman philosopher, reminds us that we make our own luck. And the difference between lucky and unlucky people we've seen before might just be in our perspective, but so many people I've interviewed talk about how lucky they feel, how lucky they were, and what they often forget is how they were prepared, either intentionally or accidentally. I've always been amazed by people who are able to practice and prepare, having been someone who just couldn't sit still to do it, and these people have found something they're passionate about and spent years honing. Gabriel Mann is just that kind of person. I go back with the guy that I've known as Gabe for nearly 30 years when he and I were both singers in the UPenn acapella scene. And since then, Gabe's music career has been something to behold. He's been a songwriter and a singer. His bands, including Spiral Mouth and Rock Band, The Rescues, have been signed to major labels. He engineered, produced music for a number of bands too. And most recently, he's been a composer for monster network television shows, Modern Family, and A Million Little Things. Other recent projects include Nickelodeon's School of Rock and Disney Plus's High School Musical, The Musical, The Series. April 1st, which is the day after this episode will drop, you'll be able to hear his songs and score for his newest movie, Better Nate Than Never, which you can also find on Disney Plus. He and I talk about his journey from his childhood home and hours of practicing piano to being on the biggest stages in the world, It was a real pleasure getting to visit with my old friend. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Gabriel Mann. Welcome back to Finding Home with me, Scott Harris. Today on the podcast, we have Gabriel Mann, who I'm just absolutely thrilled to somehow wrestle to the ground and make him come to, to hang out with me today. It's been a, it's an absolute pleasure after knowing him for a long time. Here he is. And I uh, just can't wait to talk to him. Gabriel is best known as the composer for TV mega hit modern family, along with a million little things, which you may know another very big TV show and is currently handling duties, scoring high school musical, the musical, the series on Disney. He's also scoring the music for a movie, Better Nate Than Never, which is coming out also on Disney+. And Gabe's an award, Gabriel's an award-winning songwriter, also partnered with Kyler England and Adrian Gonzalez to create The Rescues, a rock band that was signed to Universal, and whose music was featured in shows across the TV landscape. We're going to dive back into musical roots and specifically into the deep, dark world of acapella, which is where I met Gabriel Mann nearly 30 years ago at the University of Pennsylvania. So without further ado, happy to introduce Gabriel Mann to the podcast. Hey, Gabriel. Hello. How you doing, man? I'm good. Where are you? you? I'm doing well. 
Where Where are you today? Are you in L.A.? I'm in L.A. I'm in my studio in Mid-City, they call it, L.A., which is like, if you're an L.A. person, it's like between La Brea and Fairfax. Uh, it's like kind of central location in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I, I must confess that L.A. is... I think there's no city in America that intimidates me more than LA. It's so big. I felt that way before I moved here, but then you move here and you live here and you sort of start to get to know the different neighborhoods. It's, I mean, it, I actually find it sort of similar in terms of like how those neighborhoods work in terms of, you know, there's different neighborhoods that have different vibes and that's the same thing that you get in Manhattan and same thing you get in, Chicago and a lot of different places. It's just spread out. That's what's so complicated about it. And I think what is probably intimidating about it, it's, it's really big. And like when, like my first jobs here, I had to drive a lot. Like I would drive from Topanga Canyon, which is sort of equivalent to like, I mean, it's definitely not Manhattan. It's like outside the city kind of in the, in the mountains. And I would drive from there into Hollywood. It was like a 45 minute one way drive. And that was my job. I would like drive from, I would drive a hard drive from one place to another place and then bring back the hard drive after it had been like offloaded, which took like three hours to offload like 800 megabytes of data. Wow. That, that, that sound, when you said it was a hard drive, I was like, oh, are you like, were you a bus driver? You know, like it's a, like a hard drive. It was a long drive and I was delivering a hard drive. Nice. Well, let's, let's start. You, you grew up far away from LA in, in Texas, you know, far from LA, far from New York. What, what was that like? Um, you know, I think Texas gets a bad rap now and depending on you know what side of the political spectrum you're on at the when i grew up there it wasn't i i didn't like i don't know if this is true of where you grew up but like we didn't really think about politics that that much and now like i feel like everything is all politics so like growing up there was just it was just where i grew up i didn't really know anything else and i'm from san antonio so like san antonio out of these sort of texas cities to me is sort of the most kind of chill it's like a sort of like a small town vibe in a big city um and it was great you know it was i mean i was like an introvert and um i was like extremely shy so i basically would stay home all the time when my siblings were out doing what teenagers do and my parents would go out and i would just be home were you were they older than you they're older. I have an older sister and two older brothers. So they're, and we go like up by twos. So I was the youngest and I like, I just didn't know. I, I basically what happened was I was at the Jewish day school till seventh grade. And then I went into public school in our neighborhood. And that was like a major, uh, terrible time. <laughs> <laughs> so is so this like, this like you had your bar you had your bar mitzvah and then you left? Is that kind of how they? Basically, yeah, basically, yeah. And, and then, so I was in the last grade of middle school at this public school, and I didn't know anyone, and uh, that was traumatic. And then I went to this public high school, and I like you know I gradually met a few people, and I knew a few people, but like it wasn't I was not my uh, fully realized self. And it took me really until 
I left high school to sort of become that. I was small and I was like intimidated and I didn't really understand what was going on. And like I had been in this very sheltered sort of uh, small, like with a small world within a small world. Like I was in the little Jewish community in San Antonio and then suddenly it was like everybody had like a ranch and they were all going to the ranch every weekend. And I was like, I don't know what's happening and I don't know anyone with a ranch. So I'll just sit at home and learn to play the piano. So when did the, when did the piano, when did that start? That was basically around that time. I mean, I had been taking piano lessons as a kid, like people do, but it didn't start becoming something that was sort of like an extension of myself until that period of time like like early in high school i got a new teacher who was into um who i basically had sort of vetted and made sure that she was going to be cool with me trying to learn like pop music which was not the case with my prior teacher your your piano you're talking about your piano teacher yes exactly what was what was was it what was her name or his prior teacher would like the prior teacher would smack my hands with a ruler and it was like really hardcore and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, nice. um, but then the new teacher is this woman, Sharon Kasurik, and I think she's still around. She's, she was great. She would like, you know, she would show me like, you know, popular pieces of music, Billy Joel, Elton John, and, and stuff that like I wanted to play. And she showed me, and basically at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't as much about, it's partially about her. It was mostly about being home when all of my siblings and parents would leave and sitting in front of the stereo and learning how to play things by ear. That was basically my life in high school. Because the internet did not exist. There was no internet and I had no friends. And that was what I did. Like that that really was, I mean, I would play basketball. I had like four friends. We would play basketball all day Saturday and any other time I was basically at the piano. And and I would improvise. I learned to improvise because basically when you're learning to play things by ear, you're learning sort of how the how chords work and like what different inversions do. And I was also trying to figure out how to sound like the whole band, which is something that a piano can do that not every instrument can do. Um, like the rhythm, you mean like the, you were trying to imitate, like the get kind of yeah, get the rhythm like, of the drums or trying to make exactly, the piano... Like like I wanted Lock to in. sing it and play it myself, whatever I was hearing on the radio, whether whether it was like a song that, uh, you know, whatever pop music was on the radio. And this was like the mid 80s. So like it was tons of great music and it was all very, you know, keyboard heavy, too. Yeah, a lot of keyboard stuff. And um, but, but whatever. Anyway, so I would learn that that time of learning to play things by ear was pretty formative. I mean, the other reason that I was doing that was because I went to Camp Young Judea and at Camp Young Judea in Wimberley, Texas, there was a kid who was playing like Journey on the piano. And, and I mean, I remember his name. His name's Danny Carpell. I don't even, I have no recollect. I have no idea what he's doing now. I've never really thought about it, <laughs> but, but he would play whatever from the radio and the chicks would like flock around. And I was like, I can't, I got to do that. That was, ba- that's basically why I wanted to learn how to 
do stuff by ear. Because you wanted to be, this was a, this is a story. I heard Billy Joel say the exact same thing that he was, that, that piano started because he was in, he wanted to actually be able to uh, be interesting or, or be able to find a, a medium of conversation with, with girls. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's not uncommon generally for musicians, but like specifically for, for me, it was like, I was like, this is not what they're teaching me. They're teaching me how to play Mozart and I don't, that's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> did, anyway. did, did you, you said at some point you said, wait a minute, I'm not a, I'm not going to be a classical pianist here. Yeah, I was never I was never like technically that good, like my my virtuosic capability with my fingers, like I just couldn't move them that fast. And I also was not like super into practicing. What I was into was like figuring stuff out and and singing along with it, because I'll tell you another just to get into the nitty gritty for yeah, one second. Of course, the when you get piano vocal music, sheet music, it has you play the melody as part of the music. Because they figure, well, you can't sing, so you're gonna. <laughs> they're assuming no vocals. Yeah, they're assuming no vocals, so you're gonna play the melody on the piano, and and they sort of like figure out a kind of crappy version of the accompaniment, and so, like a nail, like a nail salon or something, like like snoozak. It's like a snoozak version of whatever you're. Yes, that's exactly right. So I was being presented with those that kind of sheet music, and I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Not only does, do I not want to be playing the melody because I want to be singing it, but also the accompaniment is just wrong. It wasn't like what they were actually playing in the song. It, it was related to it, but it wasn't the thing. And so that was a that's sort of the nitty-gritty. So that, that was why I sort of wanted to learn how to do it myself by ear. Because I felt like I could get closer to the real way that it was supposed to sound. And when did you realize that you could sing? I mean, it was it was? Well, I mean, my my the voice that I have now is not the voice that I had then. Like I was, I was really, um, I was, I didn't grow until I was like seventeen. So I was like just leaving high school, and so my voice was like kind of a mess. I could sing, like I could hold pitch and everything, but I didn't really know what to do with my voice until basically I graduated from high school. But I still sang. I was just sort of like, I didn't really know what to do with it. You know, you know how like it's sort of like you don't know, you don't really know what you sound like. You play when you used to play back. You record yourself on a tape machine and you would play back. You're a recording of yourself, and you'd be like, "Is that what I sound like?" All the time, right? My kids are doing the same thing now. But yeah, you you you're like they say they they're like I hate listening. They they don't like the way they sound. They're like, "That's not me, Daddy." Like I don't sound like that. And I'm like, "Well, it sounds like you to me." It's like a really weird. Uh, it's just that's just what it is. So anyway, so that was like. So so I. I knew I could see my father was a cantor and and he's got this huge booming voice and I never sounded I still don't sound anything like him. I sound like my mom who can sing, but is not like a. Wait, so he was a cantor like that was his profession? No, he's a clinical pediatric neurologist, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a cantor at the Orthodox Shul in San Antonio where because at an Orthodox Shul, it's like they don't pay a cantor at an Orthodox Shul. They they find a guy who can sing and my dad's 
dad was a cantor and his cousins who are we come from a long line of cantors but i'm not and anyway whatever <laughs> well so so in that context he's he's let's say every weekend he's heading to the orthodox shul to 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 lead the, everyone in song in prayer and was there an expectation is he looking at you going you're you're at home playing piano and singing along is he is he ever around to 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 hear you go well okay he's interested in music like maybe it well they knew i was interested in music cuz i would play the piano i would be sitting at the piano improvising like all the time this basically i can't even remember like i don't really remember studying that much i must have studied and I must have done my homework, but I basically remember all of that period of time of high school sitting in this, we had this corner where the piano was and behind the piano was a stereo. And so you had, I had access to the stereo and I would just like, whatever. I would, I was playing the piano all the time. So they knew I was into music and, and I was getting better quickly. I was able to figure things out faster and faster and faster the more I did it. So that was, that made me hungry to do it even more because then there were songs that were somewhat complicated that I couldn't figure out. And I was like, well, why can't I figure that out? So it was really like, I mean, they, anyway, so they knew I was into it. Also in, in shul, my dad would sing and I would sing in harmony with him because, you know, that was, because everybody else, like, I don't know <laughs> how many Orthodox shuls you've been to, but like, it's generally a bunch of old moaning men who can't really sing. And so that would always drive me crazy. And I would try to make, like my dad could really sing. So it was nice to sing harmony with him. And, and I still would do that when we get together. And, and so you have three older siblings Were were they, I, I'm, I, I'm just imagining siblings being nice or mean to you as you hammer away on the piano all the time. What were they also musical or were they kind of disinterested? They weren't really, they, I, you know, everybody at that age is like doing their own thing. They're not, we weren't really like, like they were, I, it's funny because like they, we were so close in age, but like, I don't think of them that way. I always thought of my sister as being like really old. And, you know, by the time I got to high school, she was in college. So she wasn't really there. And, but I, but I, what I did get from her was her records and, because she had like at some point she left a bunch of records at the house so like the cars and the eagles and the rolling stones and like stuff like that i i had access to those records and then i started figuring out that i was supposed to get records <laughs> so at some point you wait a minute i can actually go and you know yeah. not just radio but i can actually go and pull things from a store and yes and the first record i ever got i actually got a record from a friend of mine who then their whole family became like super Orthodox and they all live in Israel. But they, but at the time they were totally not Orthodox. They were completely secular. They were like barely Jewish. Anyway, there was a Billy Joel song. It was a hit in the eighties from the Glass Houses album, which is one of the reasons that this studio that I am in is called Glass House. The, the first record I bought was that record from Max Lifshitz. <laughs> meaning, meaning he was like, yeah, I'm, ge I'm getting rid of all of my music because I'm, I, he didn't care. No, he was like, not, there was, there was no, like nothing happening. He was just 
he didn't care about it. And I was like, I was like, that's Billy Joel. Can I have that? And I bought it from him. And um, and then I realized you could like go to the store and like get all of Billy Joel's other records. And that like blew my mind. And then I basically started listen, learning every Billy Joel song because they're so obviously piano centric. And so not only were they great songs, but like they were born to be played by me. So it was that was like a major revelation when I discovered. Billy and you, you keep saying records because we're talking about music. They were, records. They were actually <laughs> records or were they like cassette? They were records. No, okay. They were records. And check this one out. OK, so when I got that record, these were records like they were records. Yeah. The, the stereo that I had, which is like a component stereo system that my parents at one point got was like a record player on the top and like a dual cassette deck. Right. And a radio. And that's that that was it. And then and then under it, there was like a big like uh, cabinet for records. Anyway, so that record, he didn't have the right sleeve. He didn't have the original sleeve, but I didn't know that it was not the right sleeve. It was just a white, like sort of generic sleeve that the record came in. So I literally got this is like how freaking ancient I am. Apparently the I got my mom's typewriter and I typed out all of the lyrics to every song on the sleeve you typed on right directly yeah, on like the sleeve I, I loaded the sleeve into the typewriter and i typed all the lyrics on the sleeve because that because i had seen other records and they were like why did why I was like why does this record not have the lyrics on the sleeve and then i i realized that the actual version of the real version of this record has a sleeve with the lyrics on <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I when when was the first time you? I can even kind of envision that album, which is like he the bat is a shot from the back, and he's like throwing a rock at Glass House, right? I mean, I think so. At some point, you see the sleeve, and you're like, oh, <laughs> this is this is like the inner sleeve, right, right, right. So like the inner sleeve had all the lyrics on it, and I was like, and then I had to basically buy it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're beyond. You have this. Basically, it seems like the radio and and were there other people you're record at some point you're recording yourself, you said. And were there other, you know, just to hear what you sounded like or just to I don't know. What, well, yeah, but that wasn't those weren't like real recordings. But, you know, it's funny. I in when I just got to Penn, I my roommate had a dual cassette deck and there, he had he had like overdub mode. That was the first time that I recorded myself, like in terms of like trying to make an actual piece of music that was a recording of myself doing something. But before that, like in high school, I was in like the Mazel Tov trio with, uh, <laughs> with Peter Huerta, who was not Jewish. He was the drummer. And and um, Danny Ross, who was like a really good wind player, like great clarinet player. And... Um, so that was like, I was in that band in high school. We would play at like, you know, bar mitzvahs and like every other like sort of public Jewish event. And then I was in Los Hurtin' Dogs, which was like a funk band in high school. And that, like, I was in it basically because I had a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I, I only remember playing a few gigs. And then that band actually went on to have like a hit in Austin. They all went to UT and... um and the bass player dated the girl that I like wanted to be my girl. And that was just totally horrifying. 
So wait, you, so these were, they were in college and you were in high school and playing with them or they were, this was before they, they went to high school I mean, they were in high school and then you, this was, in, this was when I was in high school. This was, these, those were the two groups that I was in in high school. And they, was this all, so the Mazel Tov trio is like a cover, like Jewish cover Classic, music. Like, you know, Klezmer. Yeah. Klezmer band. Okay. And then. And you're just cranking away on. Okay. And then, so the, and then the hurting dogs, is this like an original, these are original. Original punk band. We had a song called wash the dog. We had, um, it was like a, it was a band. We were like a real band and we would have like real rehearsals. There was like a real drummer. It was like a real thing. But I was sort of like an adjunct member. I was I was not like the core of the band. And I was not singing. I was just playing keyboards in the back and making noises. You know, I wasn't singing. So they're writing music. You're just like playing along. Yeah, I was just like happy to be invited, basically. And so so I've tried to... I, let, let's dive into college acapella because it's, I know it's like an abrupt shift there, but how did you go? When did you learn about acapella? Like when you arrived on campus or was yeah. it? I didn't know anything about anything. I basically, uh, but here's just to take one small step backward. I deferred from Penn. I got into Penn. I had no idea that I, I knew nothing about it. My, I had three siblings who were all very smart and they went to very good schools and by the time my parents got to me, like, they weren't worried about it. And, like, I guess I wasn't really worried about it. Like, I got good grades, but I wasn't like my siblings, who were, two of them were valedictorians, and the other one was just sort of generally a genius. And and um, whatever, they, they weren't worried about it. So I applied to a bunch of places, and I got into Penn, and I was like, well, I'll go to Penn. That sounds fun, like Philadelphia. What could go wrong? And, and um but it wasn't like a big, like, you know, my daughter's applying to school now and it's like, we're so much more on top of it. <laughs> my parents were like, not, they, they were just like, you know, they figured it was going to work itself out, which it did. Anyway, so like I, I deferred for a year. I went to Israel for a year as part of this program through my old camp, Camp Young Judea. So Young Judea has a program called Year Course. I went to Israel for a year. And that's where I sort of became essentially the person that I am now. I I basically shed my sort of like... Young Judea was a place where like I could... I went to camp there from third day grade until I was done with high school. And very gradually, I sort of could be who I was, who I thought I was supposed to be, like a... Just like a, I was more comfortable, I guess, in my own skin in that environment than I was growing up in San Antonio and going to high school there. And so then I went to Israel for this year program. And over the course of that year program, I like played, I had like a little duo with my friend Josh, who was a guitar player. And like we played in little clubs in Israel. It was, it was just sort of more like I started to become who I was supposed to be, I think. So that then by the time I got to Penn, I kind of was ready to have like basically a whole new life. And I know that that's not like super uncommon, but it just felt like, it felt good. I felt, I was, I was excited about going to Penn and I was excited to like start a new chapter of life. So I went to that freshman performing arts night 
like you did probably. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was the, it was a complete eye opener. I, I, but I didn't think anything about it. I just like wound up there because we all wound up there somehow. They're like, this is what you're going to do. It's like a thing. And you, I went there and I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> you had, you had like, you watched, you watched aca- college acapella and you're like, oh my God. Jazz group. Here's counterparts. Here's the jazz group. And then, I mean, first of all, there was all these other groups that like, I didn't really care about, like the improv comedy and whatever, and the theatrical groups. I didn't really even understand that at all. I was like, what, what are they doing? Cause I had never really seen anything like that. But then the, when the acapella groups started going and however many there were like 10, I was like, oh, okay. And I, and I quickly assessed that pen six was the one to be in. They were hilarious. They were really good. The arrangements were great. And they just looked like they were having the best time, probably because they were wasted. And, <laughs> and, um, and I liked off the beat and I liked counterparts, but I didn't feel, I, they felt like a little not fully realized or like not as good. They just, they just, I felt like they weren't as good. So that was, but I had never seen an acapella group before. I just sort of saw them and I was like, oh, well, that's the good one. And that one's okay. And that one's jazzy. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and you were like, okay, this is the thing I want to do. And then, yeah. or, or you weren't like, hey, I, I want to go play, you know, piano on campus or play in local clubs or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did that when I was a junior, maybe at one point I basically had, I started like kind of writing songs somewhere during college. I mean, I had written some songs in high school and they were like just awful. Um, but somewhere in college, I started writing slightly better songs still like in retrospect, not so great, but, um, Anyway, like I basically was like, I wasn't ready to do that. I wasn't ready to like go out on my own and sort of do something. But I, whatever. So I auditioned for these groups because I figured that would be a great way to sort of be involved in a musical something. And I didn't really know, I didn't like know what it was going to mean. You know, I don't think any of us know what it's going to mean, that it was going to be sort of like all encompassing. (laughs) And and I got, so I didn't get into Pen6. I was like, fuck. And, and I did get into Off the Beat. And I was like, okay. But then after like a couple rehearsals with Off the Beat, I was like, I don't know if I can be in this group. They're just like not that great. And <laughs> like, and I mean, Larry, do you know Larry? Larry would. I don't. Larry, well, okay. Larry, Larry and Greg, who I literally just had dinner with two nights ago um they were sort of like i they they saw me as like the future they were like this guy understands music and he's gonna like make us better than we are and i was like i gotta get out of here and start my own group because this is not as good as it can be and i don't know really what to do about that so i was gonna take the people that i got in to off the beat with and uh and start my own group. I was going to make like a quartet and we were going to like take over Penn, the pen acapella scene. And, and, um, <laughs> and basically Greg and Larry like convinced me to stick around and make off the beat better. And, and that is what I did. Basically I sort of started to arrange 
and I gradually arranged more and more. And I had never done that before either, and I thought that was really interesting. And at the same time, I, I took a one of the core, one of the like requirements at Penn was to have, you know, there's like the general requirements. So one of the classes I took for the general requirement was called History of the Symphony. And that class like blew my mind. This was like first semester of freshman year. And so then I became a music major as a result of that class. I was pre-med. So like, and I stayed pre-med. I was pre-med all the way till the end until like I didn't do second semester organic chemistry. I did everything else in pre-med and I was not particularly good at it, but I was majoring in music at the same time. And, and I realized, I think basically as a result of that class, which I thought I'd never really sort of, I'd never really studied music in that way. Like we were studying symphonies. We were studying the history of the symphony and, and how they're made and why they exist and like how they changed over time. And like, it was just like, my brain was like exploding. I couldn't believe how great it was. And so then, so I was sort of doing that and off the beat was this other thing that was like a laboratory of making music. Um, it, it was like, I really looked at it as a lab. Like when you arrange music for an acapella group, you're, it's the same thing as orchestrating for, you know, an orchestra or any other kind of ensemble. You have an ensemble of instruments and and you make them do, you can make them do things. You can make them do whatever you want to do. And that's, that, I had never had that experience before. So that was like a really uh, exciting thing about being in an acapella group. You could like make this arrangement and then the next day you'd be at the rehearsal and then there it is in front of you being performed. It's pretty exciting. Well, it's safe to say, I mean, you know, fast forward maybe a couple of years into that. I mean, all of a sudden you were winning a bunch off the beat was winning a bunch of awards for your arrangements. So it, it obviously paid off. But my my question about acapella and because you and we'll kind of jump around here a little bit, but acapella was never known for original music. I mean, it's been made popular now with like Pitch Perfect and, and all of that. So it's much more mainstream. But it's never been a medium. I don't call it a genre because it could be all sorts of different musics, but like, why do you think it's never been a medium where people write their own really known for original music as opposed to everything else that's out there in the world? It's not a genre of music. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's an ensemble. It's like, it's like if you have a band, not every band is made of drums, bass, guitar, and vocal. Some bands are like, there are, there are like DJ projects where like there's two guys with a laptop and that's just like a different ensemble. And so I don't know exactly why. I mean, really, I think it's just about the songs. Like there, there's really only one major example now of, a, of an acapella group that would call themselves an acapella group that makes original music and that's pentatonics. They're, but not even they don't even even they don't have that much original. But they do have some, and they and they you know their big hits are original songs that they have made or that have been made with other people or whatever. And there are a lot of like you know quote unquote semi pro acapella groups that are trying to write songs and make songs, but like it's almost like a different business. Like 
in order to compete on the radio, it's got to sound like a million dollars. So like, not only does it have to sound like a million dollars, but the song itself has to be, you know, worthy of like breaking through on the radio. So like, you're sort of asking a lot of people to, to give a shit <laughs> that something is acapella. Like they don't care. They don't, Right, they just want it to sound good. It to be a great song. Like, like Driver's License was a hit for Olivia Rodrigo because it's a great song and she's a compelling performer. And the lyric is very personal and like, and like relatable. So like, if she, if that had been an acapella song, okay, that, but that's not the point. You know what I mean? So I don't know, like, I'm not sure exactly what your question is other than like, I don't, I never thought about, like, we could talk about, like, Ball in the House, Ball in the House of the group that you were in, and I came to Boston to produce that album. Like, I just thought we were, like, making an album, which we were. We were just making an album the same way that you would make an album with any kind of a group. And so, like, I didn't think about it as an acapella album. I was just trying to make it sound as good as I could make it sound using what was in front of me and knowing that there were some like quote unquote rules which was basically just that we weren't going to use instruments and that we were going to make all the sounds ourselves within that though like i've always felt like you know there's there are no rules and in fact my daughter's acapella group is going to come here in not this weekend but next weekend and they're going to sing they're going to record we're going to record a song that my daughter arranged and for for some other purpose for their school and they're we're going to record it like the way that i know how to record acapella and like the teacher is sort of like not she doesn't like get it yet she's gonna get it when they're here <laughs> but like i'm trying to explain to her she's like well well can you like add a track behind it i'm like you don't i promise you i'm gonna make this sound like a billion dollars and you don't need a track and you don't need me to beatbox, I'm gonna get stuff, I'm gonna turn it into magic, and don't worry about it. And <laughs> anyway, so like, it's the same, it's like producing any kind of music, but anyway, I, I don't know exactly what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, so at some point you, did you go to LA for, for additional school, for film school or something? What, what got you to LA in the first place? Yeah, I basically, there was somebody who went, who was at Penn, who had been to this program at USC and had like come back and like, I guess I talked to them and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this like music degree. <laughs> and, and, um, and they were like, Oh, well you should go to this film scoring program at USC. And I was like, what? Uh, and so I looked into that and I, my dad claims to have to take credit for this. Also, he said that he told me about some film scoring program somewhere and whatever. Anyway, so I, but I had, it was not really on my radar to do that. I was just majoring in music because I was really into music and I, I, I just loved it from a very sort of pure, in a very pure way, not like a, I'm going to make a living as this kind of way. And, but once this guy told me about that, I was like, oh, okay, let me look into that. And so I looked into it and there's a film scoring program at USC, it's still there. And now it's a master's degree. At the time it was like a one year advanced studies degree. And so I applied. The application basically consisted of three pieces of music. You had to like have three original pieces of music like on paper 
Uh, one of them had to be like a big band thing. One had to be like some kind of orchestral thing and one and some other thing. And I had written, I had one of those things. <laughs> I had, I had written a, I had written like a seven piece ensemble original score for a Penn campus production of Midsummer Night's Dream. It was like a bassoon and an oboe and a piano and like some other random stuff. And it was really nice. And it was like, it was like maybe 10 pieces of music. I wish I had it because it was really my first time writing a film score basically. And, but it was live, it was performed live. It was really, really fun. And um, so I, so that was one thing. I did. And then I like made two other things real quick, like in my room at Penn. Uh, like a big band thing. I like listened to some big band. I had I knew nothing about big band. Was all kinds of crazy transpositions in, in a big band. And like you're talking about like a full sax section and trumpets and trombones and like a drummer and a bass player. It's like very complicated. And I sort of like did a crash course in that really fast and made something. And then another thing, I had written some quote unquote orchestral music before. But the other thing about Penn was that like the music major at Penn is like not, it's not a preparatory, it's not like a, they're not training you to be like a working composer. They're just like teaching you about music. So, so they didn't, anyway, whatever. It was all, there was maybe some, yeah, it was, it was a lot of theoretical. We were talking about like music theory and, and it was all very piano based. And, you know, we had these, this incredible faculty of consisting of like George Crumb and James Primosh, both of whom have just died within the last couple of years. And um, I mean, George Crumb is like this legendary composer. Anyway, whatever. So I made these three things. I sent them in this guy, Buddy Baker, who's like 90 years old running the program. And he, I, he calls one day and I just happened to pick up the phone in my room on the third floor of the fun house at 10. And he's like, hey, is this Gabe? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He's like, this is Buddy Baker at USC. Why don't you come on down? It was, I swear to God, that's what he said. <laughs> and, and so then I went to this person and I was like, I'm moving to LA that fall after we graduated. And my brother was moving to LA also because he had a job there. So I drove out with him. I knew nothing about it. And, but I had like a one year program at USC to do. So I like had a thing to do for a year. And then that's basically what brought me here. And I, I've been here since then. And, and so you, you bone up, you become, you know, you got some fundamentals now for about film scoring and then walk me through when we crossed paths again, you were producing albums for people and you were like, an audio, you were audio engineering and were you also working on films at the time? Like what were you doing for the first, you know, you had a break, we'll talk about your kind of break into TV, but how did that, what did that look like? It was not, um, I, I, I was not sold on the whole thing after I did that program. I was like, well, this is okay. <laughs> like, and I got some like, okay, recordings out of it. And but I wasn't like super sold on it. But basically, I was just trying to figure out. I was like, well, now I'm here. How am I going to survive? I've already sort of like planted my flag uh, in music. And I'm not I knew I knew I was going to do music. I knew I was not going to like suddenly like regret this and go back to 
try to get better grades in pre-med and like be a doctor. I knew that that was not happening. So once I, once we finished, I like, I basically was like scrounging around for work and I was doing all kinds of things that were sort of however tangentially related to music. Like I would be an assistant uh, for another composer or I would, I would, I worked for a, a wiring technician who like, like studio wiring pro pro audio uh, wiring like I literally would like be in her sweatshop with a soldering iron making cables and she still has examples of my work on the wall of like how to not make a cable it was, I was terrible <laughs> at it but that was like a summer job at one point and but mainly I was going from composer to composer I would spend like a year with a composer and I did that like for a few years and then and the third one of those so the, the first guy i worked for was this guy that was in topanga canyon i would drive his hard drive from one place to another and i would like and it was for a kids tv show um called beekman's world which was on nickelodeon at the time this was like 1997 or something and then i worked for another guy named russ landau russ landau wound up after i worked for him he did um survivor so like he did great after that but the, i was long gone at that point after him um, I worked for a guy named David Schwartz. David Schwartz is sort of critical to my story. David was, David had a beautiful studio, it still has a beautiful studio, in uh, the Palisades, and over, overlooking the ocean, incredible. And I, you, you walk into the studio and you're like, oh, well, this guy is like a real guy. <laughs> like, and he had just come off like eight years of, writing the music for Northern Exposure, which I had never seen, and I still have really only seen a couple episodes, but I knew that that was like a real show and and that, and that there was real music in it. And so I was his assistant for a year, and basically at the end of that year, I was like, this is not for me. I A, don't like being an assistant. B, he, he wasn't like the, the greatest boss, <laughs> but I learned a ton. Uh, at his studio he was big on recording real instruments so we were always having players in and so i learned a lot about like you know the fundamentals of recording music which is something that you would think they would teach you at a film scoring program but they don't and and you know like making charts for people and like and like figuring out how to bring a live guitar into like a this is also during the transition of tape to digital audio and so I was sort of born in digital audio because I was there right when it started. So um, so he had a tape machine and we were recording on his tape machine and we were recording some digital audio and they would run together and you would sync them up together. Anyway, whatever. Then I was like, this is terrible. I hate this. I don't really like TV music um, and I'm going to go write. And I had been writing some songs. I'm gonna. I was like, I'm just gonna be a rock star. This is way easier and it's much more up my alley. And um, I like songs better. And score is dumb. And so then, so basically, like after that, my friends Chris and Becky, who I, I joined an acapella group, of course, uh, when I got like about a year into being in LA. Uh, there was like a post at USC somewhere that was somebody was like, we need a beatboxer. And I went and auditioned and suddenly I was in an acapella group that was called This Side Up, which later became Spiral Mouth. Spiral Mouth was sort of like a precursor to 
what I think of as a precursor to to um, to like um, Aurora, which is a group that exists out here, which had a different name before. They were called Sonos, but really also a precursor to uh, Pentatonics. We like we would do. We were there were six people. We all had like a big array of guitar pedals, and we were like sort of like the rockers of acapella, as opposed to sort of like beautiful harmonies. It wasn't pristine. It was using all, it was like just tech, technology all the way. Yeah. As big and much like a band as possible, which fit in with my whole ethos. So, so like, anyway, so I basically told Chris and Becky that we got like a record deal as, as that group, which sounds like a bigger deal than it was. And, but we had a spiral, a spiral mouth. So we had like a little money Uh and Chris and Becky used their, their winnings from that to build a studio and that studio is called asylum and we worked in that studio i worked in that studio for 22 years this is uh in studio city this is in it's just down the street it's like two miles from here it's in uh it was okay. in culver city and um Col- i was i think i was there i think i went there at some point yeah. so so that so I started in that studio just like engineering and mixing and bringing in bands and bringing in acapella groups because that was what I had expertise with. I was just trying to like earn money by the hour as an engineer, mixer, producer, whatever. And that is basically what I did for many years while I was recording songs and for myself and playing shows and developing my solo act, basically. And I did that for many years. And then I got married at some point, like in 2001. And in 2005, by then, I had like a few albums. And I was still like, you know, I was able to earn money somehow. I don't really remember how. At some point, Becky and I started writing uh, video game scores because our because Spiral Mouth was basically hired to score a game. And really basically Becky and I were hired to score it and we like got Spider Mouth to sing it. And and then that led to some other games that were not a cappella, which is this is like a great example of like why of of like how it's not really about the fact that it's a cappella. A cappella has a particular sound because that you're only making vo- sounds with your voices. But then but if you need music, music is like it relates to sort of what I do now where like when you have a new project you have to basically decide, like, what what are you gonna, what is this gonna sound like? And oh my god, sorry about that. Uh, you have to decide, like, what is this gonna sound like? And so for this, when we started doing those games, somebody saw us play our acapella group, and they were like, well, that is a cool sound, and we sh- and it, and it's kind of funny. <laughs> so. It was humorous. It like it it, it seemed like quirky enough. To... Ford Crash Bandicoot. I mean, it was like it made perfect sense. We did a we did a score, an acapella score for like a fun like video game. And anyway, so that led to a bunch of other video games, and those were those were great gigs. We were getting paid, and and it was fun. And Becky and I worked great together, and we still work great together. She's up there, and we work together all the time. And um, anyway, so basically that. At some point, like in 2005, another sort of like 
lamp post in, or sign post or like tent pole of my life was in 2005, I went on a tour. I had a manager at this point and he somehow heard from somebody that some guy had dropped out as the opener for Alanis Morissette's European tour and sent her my record and she liked it and that was it. I was off to open for Alanis in Europe. As as what band? As Gabriel as Mann. Gabriel yeah. Mann? And because of that... Oh, like solo act. Solo yeah. act. So like I, it was me, my drummer, and bass player. And, and, um, and that was like insane. It was like the best thing ever. Like huge venues and like we were treated really nicely and like her crew took all our gear and it was like full on great tour. And I had done some other tours before that that were like, you know, the opposite of that. We're like out of the back of the van. And yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, one of the other things that I was doing to make money is the thing that I did with you, which I was producing other bands, producing other projects and mixing other projects. And 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 I got involved through you guys in, with commercials and we did a few commercials together and that was really great. And so we were the first, the, This we're talking about Cool Whip. We're talking about cool whip. The cool whip. Oh, I remember. Yeah, that paid a few. That that paid, kept me from sleeping in a van Absolutely. actually a we couple did. of times. So, and that was like I felt like I had really arrived when we were making those those commercials because I was getting flown to New York, put up in a nice hotel, working at like Electric Lady Studios, and it was like all very fancy. And I would like get on the plane with my headphones and like prep the track, and it was. <laughs> I felt like I was, you felt like a rock. You felt, felt like a rock like star. I was. I could do. I felt like I was able to. Uh, like I had gotten to a place where I was earning a living, basically, and making music, and it was fun. You know what I mean? It wasn't like exactly what I had dreamt of, but I wasn't really sort of thinking in those terms. I was just like, "How am I going to survive?" And by then, we had we were like about to have a baby. Anyway, so. We go on that tour. I was expecting like, you know, the Red Sea to part when I returned and um, and nothing really happened. I sort of like returned with a big clunk and and nothing mattered. Like we sold tons of records and I was getting like I was like signing people's boobs and it was like nuts. And but it was also like pre like major social media. So like yeah, there was no viral. Nothing went exactly. viral. Exactly. It was all word of mouth. Opening and for Alanis now, like people would know, but like you'd have a few followers yeah, on you'd have a few followers. whatever. Right. Some, some, you know, some social on your own. And like, you'd, you know, that would build on itself. It, it, but, it, but then it was hard to sort of like get any mileage out of it. So whatever. So, so I got back and the thing that did happen is we had a baby. Um, and then, uh, David Schwartz, my former boss, called and was like, hey, I heard your record. And he was actually talking about a record like two records ago. It took him that long to sort of like listen to one of my things that I had made, which is in retrospect completely understandable because I'm like, I'm that guy. Somebody sends me something and it takes me a while to get to it. And he was like, hey, do you want to write some songs for this show? I have this new show and we, they need some songs and let's like do it together. Um, and that, that show was Arrested Development. So 
I would go to his studio like every couple of weeks and we would write a couple of songs and it was super fun. And like I was we were dealing directly with the showrunner who David has known for a long time. And he was he was doing the whole score, but he would bring me in to do these like one off songs every couple of weeks. And I would get to sing them. I got to play on them and we would write them together. So I was like earning income. It was really fun. It was for like a real project. And and that was great. Then basically the next thing that happened is that um, I, and I was still doing all the other stuff. It's not like I dropped everything. You know, I was still working every day and trying to earn a dollar. And then at some point I basically told David, like, let me work with you on other shows um, as a composer. And he, you know, not every composer is into that. Not every composer like has like a sort of collaborative collaborative thing yeah Yeah. most a lot of people just do it themselves and they like to do every note themselves and that's totally fine so but he i bet he i basically convinced him that i was that if he was going to do it with somebody i would i should be that guy and that it was going to be fine and so and so he did that and i spent three years sort of essentially ghosting for him writing music under his name on his projects and learning how he likes to do things and gradually writing more and more of the music myself and sort of like doing the record. And and I would, I started doing it at his studio. Then I gradually started doing, I was like, this is silly. I'm like taking up your studio to write music. You could be writing that music. Why don't you just let me go be at my, he was like still trying to like, he had a hard time letting, well, he was had a hard time letting go of the process and which is why he doesn't really do this he doesn't really have other people write with him or for him anyway so at some point i convinced him that was okay and then and then and then at some point he shared credit with me and that was a big deal on a show called carpoolers and one of those directors was um was a was going to do a pilot this is something that allison discovered this isn't now now we're fast forwarding i've got a band going uh, with the rescues, the rescues were like was made up of a few singer songwriters that I had met playing all the shows around here, and um, and so I had that band going, and and then my wife was like, hey, um, don't you know that guy, Jason Weiner, who was a director that I had sort of hit it off with on Carpoolers, and he was directing a pilot, so she was like why aren't you just calling him and seeing if he needs music for his pilot? And even then, like, this is now 2009, basically. It really, like, I'm just an idiot. Like, I didn't know that, like, that was something that I should do. I was not sort of, like, business-minded in that way. And even though, like, for the last, for the three years prior, I was like, God, I just got to get my own show. Like, I'm good at this. I can do this. I like this whole TV thing. You're like, doing it. You were I was doing already it. doing it. So I wasn't, but I was like, yeah, I was like, it's like being like a junior agent. Like, you just want to be the agent. Like, you know how to do it. You just have to sort of apprentice. Anyway, whatever. So, so I called this guy and he was like, oh yeah, why don't you come down to the set? And so I go to the set and at the set, um, are the creators and all the actors that you know from Modern Family and 
none of whom I knew at the time. I didn't know any of the people there. I just like got to the set and like was like met the guy that I knew. And he was like, oh, why don't I introduce you to the creators? And it's Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd. And they were like, yeah, whatever. And <laughs> and and, sh and got on with making their pilot. And he's like, don't worry about it. We're going to need some stuff. They weren't like focused on music. They didn't really care about music. They still don't really care that much about music in terms of uh, on their own shows. But but um. But I wrote a theme and I wrote a couple other things that they that the director wanted for the pilot. And there was another theme apparently in contention at some point later on, but everybody was digging on my theme, like the ABC people and the Fox people and like whoever was in charge. And ultimately I won basically because uh, everybody liked my theme. And and that was it that okay so that's now 2009 right around that same time um the rescues had played like a series of shows and got like a big fancy manager and got a record deal so now i've got a baby and i got a record deal with my band like a real record deal with like a real record company and i've got a tv show under my own name and on a, that's going to be on ABC. Yeah, and then the TV show <laughs> became a big hit, like, right away. Like, after, like, a few episodes, everybody was like, holy shit, this is, like, a real hit. Like, an actual hit, which is unheard of. Never happens. It never happens. Right, it never happens. Especially now. Now it happens even less. But at that time, it was still, it was sort of like, you know, not everybody watches network television now. Like, pretty much no one watches network television now. But at that time, people were still watching network TV. So, like, you could, if you went, if you got big, you got really big. Anyway, so, so then I was touring with the rescues, writing cues for Modern Family, literally from the road. Can Can you talk talk about writing cues? I mean, what what does that even? I mean, I, I I'm not a huge uh, TV watcher now, but it's like. How, what are we talking about? Like you're writing 10 pieces of music for a, for an episode or well, 20 or 30 for that show, three seconds. For, for Modern Family, I was literally writing one cue. I mean, there were times when I was doing some other things. There's probably the most cues I ever did for a single episode of Modern Family was like four or five. There was like a Disneyland episode actually, where I, I had to do more than that. Um, where I was literally just writing a bunch of like the music you would hear at Disneyland. <laughs> So oh. like I was right. I did all the music for that show. So like on rare occasions, they would license a song. Uh, but every other piece of music you would ever hear, even if it was like source music, source music, meaning like if somebody's got like in the car and there's something playing, I usually wrote all that stuff because it was cheaper for them to hire me to make like a knockoff of whatever than it was to like license some track from whoever. So and this is like 10 seconds, 20 seconds yeah, of music? Like some what of them are, we... are like a minute and a half. Some of them are long. And that, But the main thing that I was doing and that I sort of became known for on that show was these sort of like wrap it up in a bow kind of heartwarming cues uh, at the end of the episode. They would have these sort of montages. And that actually became sort of like a hallmark of Modern Family generally, that you'd have a comedy that was just like a full-on comedy, but was also like a heartwarming thing. That was pretty unusual, and that was sort of like the thing that Modern Family kind of invented, and um, and so I would almost always have a cue over that. 
But but Modern Family is not a good example of what I do every day. And and it, even then, it was like a it, it was an anomaly in terms of like the amount of music, which is barely any. And okay, so you so it was a less it was a less taxing it was the best gig workload in the, the history of writing music because I. Barely so if someone said it. someone said yeah someone said like hey. You're going to, I'm going to give you like a, like a network TV show at, while you're about to have a kid and you're also in a rock band touring w- with a major label. We're going to dial up the perfect amount of work, which is just about nothing so that you can do yeah, all these it, things at the same time. Is that kind of what? I never really put that together, but yes, it was the perfect gig at the perfect time and it was a huge hit. So it then became, you know, like it's the, it's the basis of my whole like sort of financial stability and it's but but mainly yeah like i i couldn't have done it if it was a if it was like a drama for which like i do a drama now i do a million little things a drama has like you know can have like half an hour of music for for every episode and i and they're 20 episodes a season or something whatever 15 whatever it is now use some things here and there but like it's pretty unusual to me that i that i'm not able to beat reusing something with something new because when you're you just like the way that you craft music under a drama is very specific to the emotion depending on the show like if it's i think that it's probably a little different if you're doing like a procedural drama which i've never really done a procedural drama where like like a procedural is like csi or like you know one of those kind of shows where it's just like dun, 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 dun. like there's always like a lot of sort of like action going on and like it's always sort of minor and you know until there's like a release but like when you're doing something with a lot of different sort of subtle emotional shifts like a million little things it is easier to just write new music so than it is to like try to find something that you've written by the time you by the time you you just might as well just do the new yeah, thing. Yeah, they're like, well, at this moment, it should turn this way. Well, yeah, if I had just done it, let's ju- I'll just do it. So, like, I mean, you could see what I'm working on right now. This this episode uh, of A Million Little Things is episode 15 from the fourth season. There's 26 cues. And out of those, I think two of them maybe three of them are things that we have used before. There's a couple songs in there also. So I'm not really writing 26. I'm probably writing closer to like 18 or 19 for this episode, but they're, they're long. They range in time from like, you know, they can be like five seconds, like a little transition or some of them are like, you know, a minute and a half. So here's a two minute cue, you know, and it also depends on the episode. Some episodes are, much more involved musically and there's much more sort of drama. And, and so look, as you, you've at the time, right, you, you're, you've got the rock music you're writing and then you've got whatever you've kind of dialed into the show that you're writing. How do you, even now, how are you, you, you how do you wear different hats? Like how do how does it work for you to shift from one one style to the next because it's it seems in week in and week out if you've got 20 even 18 or whatever it is the amount of cues you've got to do how do you kind of on demand well i think um, get into the get into the mode i sort of feel like that's 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, the question, like, how the hell do you, how the hell do, you well, do that? Uh, first of all, I've been doing it a long time now. I mean, not that long, really, but I basically have been doing it. Like, I, if you include the three years that I was ghosting for David, that's like, really, I started doing it in like 2006. Um, so that's like 16 years. It's not really that long, I guess. But I, I have done, in that time, I have done dozens and dozens of projects of all different kinds, video games, TV shows, uh, dramas, comedies. And um, I think that you just sort of like, you just, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, like it's, I feel like, okay, the hardest part of any gig is figuring out what you're gonna do before you've done anything. Before you've got a template for like, before you've finished an episode, before you Lang like a language. Yeah. Like uh like you're trying to figure out the the yeah. the, the, the palette you're yes. gonna paint. What's from. the palette? Like I'm doing I'm doing a brand new show right now. And the hard part was like figuring out, well, like how am I gonna approach like the whole thing is like a little bit jazzy. So like how do you go jazzy and also give it something a little specific that says this is this show and not some other show? Um, but also it has to like, sort of be, you know, the right kind of emotion. Like, so there's, the, there's, there's, a, there's several parts to it. One is how do you make it unique, different than something that you've done before, different than something that you may have heard before. Um, and also how do you write something that's appropriate for what is happening? Because that's the main deal is like, you're just trying to support, uh, what's happening on the screen in a way that is uh helpful <laughs> and you can be helpful in many different ways you're either like just supporting something that's happening and a bunch of people are talking and you want to support that or there's nothing happening really and there's like an action there's it's like action and somebody's like texting or like or, or like riding in a cab or like running to from one place to another and what is the energy of that cue and then you know, what are the, what are the, what is the tempo of that cue? And, and should it even be a cue or should it be a song? Like, should, is this the music supervisor's responsibility or is this my responsibility? So that said, there's been a billion television shows that have been made and there's been a billion movies that have been made. And so it's not like this has never been done before. We've got a lot of examples in the known universe of like successful uses of music. Uh, you know what I mean? So like, right. So it's almost, there's, there's a certain amount of, you just vibe it out. You're like, I, I have a well, inherently, you can, you can literally drop in something from something else and be like, does this kind of vibe work? You can try 10 different. Sounds. Or, or you like, before you write the thing, you're like, let me pull from my list of things just to kind of emotionally well, like, see if that, fits yeah. like all right that that's the the energy that's the right energy now let me write something that's yeah the right tempo that, or like, the right like this this show that i'm about to that that i'm dealing with right now is a um it's set in new york so that already implies something right um and the something awesome it implies something <laughs> awesome <laughs> something wonderful like the movie that i was doing when i was when i saw you in november also set in new york 
So also imply, and it's about musicals. So that implied a whole other thing. It implied the ensemble. Like basically what I had pitched at the time was like, this is going to be, the, the sound of the score is going to be, first of all, it's it's like a little old school because like the, the director is a big fan of like E.T. and like, uh, you know, Home Alone, like these sort of like classic classic uh, yeah vibe so there's so so there's a little bit of that nostalgia nostalgia factor yeah so the kind of music has that in it like very melodic like adventure fun but a big orchestra and because it's sort of set it the world is new york and it's like set in music like it's basically a kid auditioning for a musical um it it's the score is essentially a a pit orchestra from a musical that has been blown out with a symphony orchestra that's basically what it is so that involves like a drummer and a, a whole rhythm section and like a brass section that's like a tight brass section plus a symphony that's basically what the score wow is. so like you could say that just means that it's everything which it kind of is but it's also like kind of a specific idea got it and and after so many years and again like you said it's it's not like it's been forever but doing is it easy to get kind of pigeonholed into doing just tv or you know you've become very well known for what you're doing like to, to do movies um, is, is that like a leap that not everybody makes? Like people kind of get like your guy, David Schwartz kind of has only done TVs or, you know, shows or what? Well, does David's that work? done a few movies and he just did a movie recently. I think right now is sort of an interesting time where there's a little more, uh, a little more of this going on, like a little more crossover between worlds because probably because of streaming. I mean, like a, a streaming doesn't really distinguish as much between a streaming movie and a streaming series. Half the time you don't even know what you're, you're, someone says, I want to watch this. Oh, oh no, it's not a movie. It's I've got to commit to this for, you know, 15 episodes. Is this a limited series or is it like the season eight or like, is it a movie? Like, I don't know what it is. So like in some ways, just that has changed, uh, how not just composers but like how everybody works on like editors and 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 directors and assistant directors and like how everybody sort of approaches um different gigs and how they are approached for gigs and so but at the same time there is still a difference between like a a studio film and um and like a non-studio film like so so this movie better nate than ever is my first studio film or studio feature rather so all that really means i guess is that it's like it's a 20th century fox movie so like in in this sort of classic sense there's is like a whole different department the people who are the and in fact like i don't think this is like like giving away too much or saying anything I'm not really supposed to say, but like it was, it was difficult for me to get this movie better Nate than ever um, because of exactly what you're saying. I, when, when the Fox theatrical music department was like, 
that when the director came to them and was like, I want to hire Gabe to do the score, they were like, you mean the Modern Family guy? Like to score this, you know, to score our theatrical release. And so they were skeptical. Even though like, you know, I'm a trained composer. I went to an Ivy League institution <laughs> studying with George Crumb. Like, what do, what do I have to do to, like, and I'm 49. Like, I've, I, if you look at my IMDb, it goes on forever. Like, it's crazy how much stuff I've worked on. But it's sort of, you know, it, people just know what they know, and they and they don't, um, and, and, and it's not, I'm not faulting them for that. Anyway, I had to prove it. So I went and recorded. I, I still have to prove it all the time. I don't know if there's going to come a day when I won't have to prove it. I hope that there will. And, and, it, and depending on what the gig is, I can either say, like, I have, I know that you were interested in this also. Like, there's, there are times when I am able to choose what I work on. There are also times when I have to show what I can do to get the gigs that I want. So I'm sort of really not like, like, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Like I earn a good living and I work on cool stuff and like, but I'm still, you know, we're all trying to get Game of Thrones and we're all trying to do Star Wars and we're all trying to get like, you know, all the composers in the world. Like we just want to get, we just want to work on cool stuff. I think I told you about this also. Like, there's like five things that every that every gig has the promise to be, and this I don't think it only applies to music, but it like it could probably be expanded to like any gig, any job. But it's like you want it to be fun to work on, so like the people are fun, and no one's like an asshole. You want it to pay some money, or at least you want it to not cost you money. <laughs> you want it to be seen and recognized by the world in a big way. You want it to be critically acclaimed. And there's one other thing, and I always forget what the other thing is. You want it to be creatively satisfying. So, like, if any any gig has the potential to, to fulfill one of those five things, or two, or three, or four, or five. So, like, the more that you, the more, the more boxes that any gig can check, the better. This Better Nate movie filled basically every box. The only thing we don't know is like, is anyone going to watch it? Is anyone going to care? It doesn't really matter to me because it was such a thrill to work on and stand in front of a big symphony orchestra. The director is a great friend, and we work together all the time. And he's and and work and everybody working on it was just great. It was super fun. I mean, like, if I could do that for the rest of my life, that's a great gig. Also, A Million Little Things is a great gig. Great people to work for. Really care about what I do. I, in turn, care about what I do. And so, like, those are... I don't even remember what your question was. <laughs> yeah. No, we were talking about the, the, the... You know, you were talking about choosing choosing what you want to work on. I think what you need to do now is have another kid get another record deal and then you'd be you know able to if you can't do all five things get all five things ticked off in one gig then you have 
at least all things going on simultaneously. Yeah. And all that is all just like the work part of life. That's just work. Like I only think about work when I'm here. That's the, uh, that's another thing that, uh, that I, that is interesting. That is not typical. A lot of composers work out of their home studio and I've never done that. And, um, and I don't recommend it. So you were able to compartmentalize when you're, but what happens if you get, what happens when you get like the inspirational, you know, moment you're like, Oh, that idea, you just record it on a, on a, on your I phone. Literally and then did it that yesterday. Just... I, re- I had an idea for it. Cause I have to do a main title for this new show. And I had an idea of like, I had written a demo for this show and I was like, I can use that theme, but I'm going to do it this way. And I like just sang it into the phone and just the act of doing that actually it's like when you write something down to memorize it, it's the same kind of thing. So like when I go to work on it, I probably won't even listen to it because I'll remember. You know yeah, it now. It you got to know. But beautiful. Well, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, it's incredible to to get the inside scoop on all this. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's, it's a total mystery how this, how the sausage gets made. Um, so thanks for, thanks for hanging it's out. My pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's a great gig, but there's so, so many of us that do it. <laughs> it's great. Awesome. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks great a lot. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Gabriel Mann. Thank you, Gabe, for making yourself available. And I hope everybody goes out, actually not goes out, sits on their couch and watches Better Nate Than Never on Disney+. Plus. I will be watching it with my kids very soon. And... I hope you enjoyed the conversation. He's an awesome guy. Finding Home with Scott Harris is produced by Andrea Pollyutz. Hope you enjoy it. If you like what you hear, sign up, subscribe on wherever, whatever platform you are listening to podcasts. And I will see you again here real soon. And I'll talk to you later. Bye.